Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science in each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back, everyone. Your case is on hold, episode 39 covering the August 2nd uh, issue of the journal, I believe. It's August. This is the What Me Worry Mad Magazine episode. The title is What Me Worry? Radiographic and Clinical Outcomes Following Distal Radial Fractures. As always, I'm your fearless co-host, and this episode is brought to you by JBJS CME. I know you've heard it before, but you're going to hear it again. All the best CME is at JBJS. All of these articles, you could be turning these articles, it's food for your mind, and then you can turn that into CME gold. I don't know what more you wouldn't want from this. But that's what I aspire in my life too. That's CME right. gold. It's CME like a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. There you go. The learning rainbow. We had the reading rainbow. Now we have the ortho rainbow. And at the end of the ortho rainbow is is a pot of uh, gold CME. And you can get that from JVJS. And you can get clinical classroom bundled with the self-assessment exams. You can get all the the testing that you need. These articles turn into self-assessment exam questions. Listen, Listen to us. Read the articles. You'll have the answers that you need to do amazing. And then that gets your maintenance of certification going. And that gets uh, everything that you really need from a CME standpoint. It's it's unmatched, really. It's all one one platform off of the jvjs.org website. So check that out. Uh, also, remember to hit the like button, get the notifications, check out the previous episodes if you haven't already. Everything we're talking about here in the middle of this uh, hot August it's mad. It's crazy. It's all our own opinions. It doesn't reflect the board of trustees. It doesn't reflect the editorial policy or opinions for the editor-in-chief or the other editors or the other deputy editors besides uh, Antonia and I. And sometimes we're a little bit ridiculous. We're a little bit Alfred E. Newman-like. Guest editor, Alfred E. Newman. That's a just to, fun. Kinda, just to kind of keep it interesting. So um, without further ado, I, if you don't already know, I'm Andrew Schoenfeld. Deputy Editor for Methods at the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. I have many leather-bound books, and my office smells of rich mahogany. And I'm Antonia Chen. I don't have many leather-bound books, and I do not have the smell of rich mahogany around me. (laughs) But you are kind of a big deal. (laughs) I'm a big deal because I have a cute little dog behind me right now. Kind of a big deal. (laughs) People know you. Mm. (laughs) Hmm. Oh, for a good time, call. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to top of the pile before it gets more weird. Assessment of bone healing, opportunities to improve the standard of care. That's by Shariate Al. And we have Becoming a Patient by Parcel, which is permanently free. And then we have National Institutes of Health funding to departments of orthopedic surgery at U.S. medical schools from 2015 to 2021 by Imam and colleagues. This is followed by AOA Critical Issues, Gender Justice in Academic Medicine, What It Might Look Like in Orthopedic Surgery by Day and colleagues. So now we're going to move into the headlines. 
My headline is periastabular osteotomy for symptomatic acetabular dysplasia in patients aged over 40 years old, intermediate and long-term outcomes and predictors of failure. This is by Novace and colleagues. It is free for 30 days. So as always, you don't have to take it from me. You can check this out uh, for yourself. This is a study that uh, comes from uh, close to our home here, Boston Children's Hospital, and then also Washington University in St. Louis. It's a retrospective study of patients, as in the title, over 40 years of age who underwent periastabular osteotomy. And they have 166 patients. I mean, the, the obvious points for, for this work really stand out just from reading that piece. They have median follow-up of close to 10 years, over nine and a half years, you know, only in selected institutions and, and facilities can you have this volume of procedures for this type of condition uh, and surgery at, with that that type of that length of follow-up. It's a very interesting clinical epidemiology type work appropriately graded as level four by the authors. They're using simple logistic regression models, they say, to determine whether preoperative characteristics are significantly associated with failure. So it's a clinical epidemiology. They look at factors associated with failure. Uh, in that, they're not finding age or biologic sex or BMI or some of the uh, CA angles. They're not significantly associated. Failure was significantly increased by the tonus arthritis grade and then worse preoperative WOMAC function. Some things to point out. First off, it's a it's a it's a small sample. Even with the the rarity, when you're talking about that doesn't change how rare it is or how unique it is, doesn't change the validity and the reliability and the reproducibility of the models. They only have 48 patients with failed hips. It's an incredibly small number. That means that there's definite prospect for restricted clinical variation and truncation in this cohort at hand. Uh, and they're only doing the simple bivariate testing. So there is uh, potential issues for repeated measures to be at play here. The cohort may, the findings for the cohort may be restricted to the institutions where this work was done. It doesn't necessarily translate uh, into the hands of others. That said, and I think we're going to hear this uh, mantra several times during today's episode. I think there's a lot that's eminently testable here. Uh, this is the kind of study that I think has that Kaiser Soze feature about it. You know, you can just say what it is, say what the limitations are, but these are the kinds of things that test writers really like to pull test questions from. So um, I think it's obviously very interesting and worthy of publication based on the rarity of the condition, the number of procedures that are done, the length of follow-up that they have, and I think they did the best they could with the data limitations that are available. What they identify as potential risk factors, that may not necessarily translate across all patients. But overall, well done. I'm going to keep Versace on my eyes here and, you know, kind of say within the lane that it's in, I don't think there's anything to put on hold here. Thousand percent agree with you. Thousand percent on board with that. And the nice thing is that ties very nicely into my topic. Are you on board with the Versace on the eyes, though? Always on board with Versace. Yeah, that's, that's the most important question. Yes. <laughs> so, so yours is establishing a consensus definition of a knee fracture dislocation, the skank knee dislocation 
five using a global modified uh, Delphi method. This is by Medvecki and colleagues, 30 days free. This is actually kind of like a follow-on serial for from previous uh, JBGS publications earlier this year uh, from this group. So um, take it away. So when you were a resident, how many fractured dislocations did you see? Well, I think like one. Right. Like max. <laughs> it's a rare rarity to have that even happen. So take out talking about rare things and we're talking about even, you know, they try to create a consensus on something that's a rare thing. So we know knee fracture dislocations are rare. And there's no classifications really for periarticular fractures with knee dislocations. There's a shank, the knee dis, uh, dislocation criteria and it goes the fracture dislocation one of five encompasses all fractures. So the problem is they want to create a classification system that encompasses the location of the fracture with implications of ability to reconstruct ligaments and influence graft options. Also look at surgical timing and rehabilitation. Now, technically, they didn't actually use that as part of the classification system. They just classified specific fractures into different types. And that's where the testability of this will definitely come through. But they didn't really actually comment on the different things like surgical timing and rehabilitation, things like that. They initially contacted 65 surgeons, and the final cohort included 46 internationally recognized experts. 26 were outside the U.S. and 20 were from the U.S., from 18 countries across six continents. And I really like that because it's important to be able to encompass multiple different individuals with different viewpoints, because fracture dislocation is not something that necessarily happens here commonly, may happen commonly in other places, and they may treat them differently. They used the modified Delphi method, and the idea was to achieve consensus, which hadn't been established before. So using expert opinion as opposed to studies, because there's just not a lot of studies on something that rarely happens. The first start, the first round started with a focus group. So instead of starting with a general big question, which is the true Delphi method, they modified it and went with a focus group with a specific objective. Mostly closed-ended questions, like do you consider this important or not, or you know, is this considered a fracture that should be part of this classification? And so for rounds one and rounds two, there's 100% participation, and then 96% participation for round three. So very high participation in this group of individuals who participated in this. Patients had to present with a bicruciate ligament injury and a radiograph, so some sort of dislocation, and a, a CT scan, and or an MRI. And there were 27 different fractures that were considered in the classification. And you can see that in table two, which I'm not going to iterate and go through, because that's not where the testable factors are. The testable factors are in table three. So consensus was reached on fracture patterns that contribute significantly to tibiofemoral joint instability. And these included things like articular surface fractures, displaced fractures requiring open reduction internal fixation, or the need for ligament repair reconstruction, which would likely have a significant impact on operative timing and management. And these fractures included, so some of these had early agreement and some took until round three to have agreement. So the early agreement ones were displaced articular fractures of the distal femur and non-displaced articular fractures of the distal femur. Early on, people said, yep, those are important. Those need early operative management. Let's put them in there. Early consensus. Subsequently, you had tibial plateau fractures looking at the weight-bearing surface. Then you had tibial plateau rim compression fractures, and then posterior lateral ones, there's three different types of Bernholt classification compression fractures, and then Gertie tubercle avulsion fractures, because that took the extensor mechanism into account. The ones that took until around three to get consensus were displaced tibial tubercle fracture, displaced patellar body fracture, and displaced non-inferior patella pole fracture. So there's only 11 that were accepted, and there were 27 that were proposed. So a lot of them were not included. 
And then things, things like any avulsions of the ACL, PCL, SGUN fractures, LCL and LCL avulsion fractures, anything that wasn't on the weight-bearing region, potentially posterior lateral fractures that were different types, like the type 1 and type 2A, which only involved the posterior cortical impaction, but less than 10% bone loss. Any fractures of the proximal distal fibula, if the fibula it was involved was not included as part of that, and non-displaced fractures of the patella body and patella inferior pole did not uh, reach negative consensus, meaning they shouldn't be included. So a lot of information here, but the real take home are there's 11 different types of fracture patterns that will probably be tested in the future. Um, hopefully it lays the groundwork for future research or future classifications of these studies so there can be more discreetly defined, and hopefully outcome studies can come out of this. But again, it's a rare condition, so we're not going to see it a whole lot, but hopefully it's gives some framework for clinical as well as research uh, implications in the future. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting study. I, I will tell you personally, I don't really like these that much because it's kind of, you know, you have a little club with like a particular interest and then you get everybody together and you ask some questions and then you call it like a Delphi thing or modified Delphi, whatever it may be. I, I, I don't know how much is really actionable here. I think it is interesting. It's a rare condition, obviously. And a lot of people who have expertise in these areas and experience, you know, got together, but it is graded, you know, level five appropriately. So it's, it's really just expert opinion. There's not objective evidence for the, I, I think the biggest question is just really the clinical utility. Like, you know, so a resident calls you up and they're like, oh, we've got the uh, 3B, you know, a 3B injury right here. First off, like at 3 a.m. when they're calling you with the 3B knee dislocation, uh, do you even know what that is? Does that put a picture in your mind? Absolutely. Uh, I'm saying they're scouring through my paper and I find my JBJ. Right, 3B, I used to do that all the time, I would tell you, because it makes you seem like I had all the classifications down. I would call people up and I'd be like, yeah, this is a Frickman, like, you know, 5, uh, 5B. And then when they have to ask you, well, what what is that? Then you're like, haha, see, you see how smart I am? See what a good resident I am? You don't even know. I know. You don't know. Um, well, then the follow-up question is always, who's Frickman? <laughs> you need to come up with some information about the eponym of that classification yeah. system. I mean, they're all just some old guy, really. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I, I think it's an interesting read. I don't know how much, you know, this is coming from the knee fracture dislocation study group. So it's their, it's their thing. I don't know how testable this expert opinion is really at the end of the day. We'll find out if it starts becoming part of like the AO class. If, if you are listening to this and you are thinking about writing test questions on this, don't. How about that? <laughs> Came from here first. And if you're a resident, we apologize if we brought up the idea. Yeah. <laughs> so we're putting that test question on hold. And now the question is, is this case going to go on hold? This is the Your Cases on Hold featurette. Association between radiographic and clinical outcomes following distal radial fractures, a prospective cohort study with one-year follow-up in 366 patients. This is by Schmidt and colleagues. There's an infographic. It's permanently free. And there's a comment, the trifecta, all three things. So this is from Sweden. Again, the kind of environment where you sort of are able to have these prospective observational studies with large populations of patients where they're capturing clinically rich, granular, prospective patient-reported outcome measure collection, all of those things uh, in, in this context. And so they, they were interested in looking at 
Uh, two things, really. Uh, one, uh, whether there's radiographic and clinical outcomes following distal radio fractures uh, have a linear relationship or a nonlinear relationship based on the degree of final displacement and clinical outcome, and then whether there's some kind of clinical cutoff that, that they could establish. So um, they have 366 patients with both radiographic and clinical follow-up, so that's quite good. They only had 70 patients lost to follow-up. The average age was right around 57, but a broad range. So you have 18-year-olds in here, and, and you have patients 75 uh, in, this, in this group. So, you know, there is some concern for restricted clinical variation because how many of those, you know, are going to have, like, the most severe dorsal tilt? And how is that going to be treated versus ones that have almost no dorsal tilt? You know, is there adequate representation for all the the various subset of of what we would call interactions? Both, but you know, do you have in your seventy five year olds all of the ranges of possible dorsal tilt adequately represented? And is that at every age group, you know, all the way down? It never ceases to amaze. You think you're starting with a waterfall worth of patients, and then at the end of the day, it just ends up being a trickle. Once you start considering, you know, when you break it down into all these potential categories, all the factors, and it's like, yeah, you started with 366 patients, but you only have actually two patients that have this one particular subset, right? And that's really what it comes down to when you're trying to model things like outcomes and cutoffs, especially. And they use linear regression for this, which I think is a little bit suspect. Um, number one, because as we've mentioned in the past, there are a lot of criteria that have to be met for linear regression. Now, I, I can imagine that distal radius fractures satisfy many of them, and therefore I think it's okay that they did use it, but it's probably one of the regression techniques that's the most prone to giving you erroneous information if all of the necessary boxes are not checked for its deployment. That being said, I think that of all the papers we're presenting today, this has the most eminently testable material in it. And, uh, you know, in the conclusions, they say they found the clinical outcomes following distal radius fractures have a nonlinear relationship with dorsal tilt, worse outcomes being associated with increased dorsal tilt. That's one test item. Two, the decline in clinical outcomes starts at five degrees. That's the second test item, but unlikely to be noticeable differences as measured with the quick dash until 20 degrees of dorsal tilt. That's three. I mean, I'm literally writing the questions for everyone. <laughs> In a population up to 75 years old. So if it's greater than 75 uh, yeah, so that, I mean, that caveat is a little <laughs> bit like, uh, you know, so their population ranged from 18 to 75. So that's why they say that, right? I would say in a population averaging 57 years of age, because you know, if, if you have very small numbers of patients in their 70s, this may not necessarily translate. If you're sort of amalgamating everything together, it's your sort of average patient in this cohort was 57. So the numbers are most likely to span out probably for patients 50 to 60 or something like that. Yeah, makes sense. So um, on hold or not on hold, my friend? I mean, <laughs> they're never going to invite you to the winner's circle. you got to make your own lane, Dan Tony. <laughs> Touche, touche. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you know how I do. I, there's nothing to put on hold here, really. I think that the testable nature of this is probably much higher than the actual clinical application of it. Lots of testables. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like, 
But it also gives, let's say, you as a clinician or a resident for like a, a goal to aim for, right? Like, got to get it better than 20, per, at least for sure. You know, obviously, this is before fixation. You know, aim for the best that you can because you can high five yourself and you're like, and now I'm doing a patient this, a service as opposed to a disservice. Yeah. And, you know, we don't bring it up too, too much. I think we've brought it up a handful of times, but this is probably one on which a lot of medical legal determinations could could hinge. True. True. Very good point. Any other thoughts from your end there? No, I'm with you. I had nothing to hold on, put on hold either too. And again, very testable numeric facts. We like numbers. We like metrics. Um, so it gives us something to aim for is what I kind of think of. So, And hopefully people don't deny because of it, but then give you reason to, let's say, reduce something before going to, the, to surgery. So it's a win there. So we have two honorable mentions. One is dual inhibition of Wnt inhibitors, DKK1 and sclerostin promotes experimental fracture healing and increases the density and strength of uninjured bone. This is by Florio and colleagues with a commentary and a visual summary for uh, visually oriented learners. This is a basic science study. If you couldn't tell from, from the title, they're evaluating the effects of 16 weeks of subcutaneously administered carrier solution uh, and anti-sclerostin antibody and then the anti-DKK1 antibody or combination therapy on ulnar osteotomy healing in non-human primates, uh, synomalgous monkeys. So, you know, their clinical relevance is that combination therapy with antibodies against sclerostin and DKK1 may offer promising therapeutic strategy for both fracture treatment and fracture prevention. Interesting basic science work. And then the second honorable mention is uncovertebral joint fusion versus end plate space fusion in anterior cervical spine surgery, a prospective randomized controlled trial by Sheng and colleagues, also with a commentary. So this study that was uh, conducted in Sichuan, China, is uh, patients with single-level cervical degenerative changes were treated um, very recently, 2021 through 2022, and randomly divided uh, into two groups with 40 patients in each group. They found that early fusion after the uncovertebral joint fusion was significantly higher than the end plate uh, space fusion. It's graded level one evidence. Randomized controlled trials are always welcome and interesting, so certainly uh, worth checking out. My eyes look like a zombie. Don't bother nobody. They don't even cross my mind that you can read it off me. Uh, that brings us to the end of our Your Cases on Hold uh, segment. Hopefully, you all enjoyed what you heard. If you didn't, Thanks for sticking with us this long. And hopefully you tune in again. Give us another try. People have been giving us tries for almost 40 episodes at this point. The next episode is going to be like uh, whatever the 40-year thing is. Uh, it's the gold jubilee for number 50. So we're on the verge of that. But uh, 10 more episodes to go, 11 more episodes to go before we get there. In any case, uh, hopefully your summer's going well and all your cases are on green. But as you know, right here, your case is always on hold. Bye. 